Amen. You may be seated and children are dismissed to go downstairs. Good morning. Again. We're going to um, continue our series on the book of Romans. And we're going to look at the entire chapter of Romans 7 today. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to use it. Or if you want to look at it on your phone. Um, it's not, the entire chapter of 7 is not printed in the bulletin, just uh, for space sake. But um, I'm going to go ahead and read the whole thing. But uh, just to remind you, um, the book of Romans is a letter written by Paul. And in this letter, he gives a detailed explanation of the gospel. And he celebrates the power of the gospel. Um, it is in the gospel that we experience the power of God, and only in the gospel, through the gospel. By the gospel, I mean the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done, um, and how much he loves us. Now, the, the book of Romans is written to the church in Rome, and, and at that time, much of the church was made up of Jewish people. Um, and, um, and the Jewish people have a long history with the law of God. They have a very high view of the law of God. And so a lot of the time, Paul is dealing with, you know, what is their experience now as, as they're Christians, as they believe in Jesus, how does that impact their relationship to the law? Um, and that is very much what chapter 7 is about. Um, but it's absolutely applicable for us too, because uh, even if you don't think of, you know, Think of the Ten Commandments constantly on a daily basis. We all have a, a strong sense of what is right and wrong and how we should live our lives. We have a strong sense of kind of a, an internal law, an awareness of how we should live, how we should treat one another. Um, so listen to God's word as I read from Romans 7. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives, for a married woman is bound by, the law, by law to her husband while he lives, but her, if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive, but if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would, have not, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good. In order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. 
For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, that it is good. So now, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would... um, take your word as we have read it, as we continue to think about it this morning, and that, uh, that your spirit would work, it, would work in us to help us understand it, to help us understand what it means for us, to help us understand how it means to change us, and to help us understand how it means to move us towards Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I will admit that in the past... I have attempted to use an office chair as a ladder. I know some of you guys are chuckling because maybe you've been tempted to as well. You know, you're, you're in a place where there, a light bulb needs to be changed or there is a spider on the ceiling and the only thing around that will get you to the height you need to get to is an office chair. And I be, by, when I, what I mean when I say an office chair is a chair with wheels that spins in circles, Right? And so I've, I say attempted, usually I don't get further than like putting my foot up there and being like, um, and just starting to put my weight on it and be like, this is not going to work. This is going to end really, really badly for me, right? Um, I don't think I've ever followed through. If I have followed through, I've probably fallen and hit my head and I don't remember it. It's possibility. It's for sure a possibility. Um, but that's the thing. An office chair is not built for us to use as a ladder. It's not built for us to use as a step stool. It is the wrong tool to use for that purpose, right? We would all agree with that, I'm sure. Um, hopefully some of you guys can relate to me. Maybe all you guys just like, that guy's an idiot. In Romans 7, Paul talks a lot about the law, right? He met, I, I, didn't, I didn't even count how many times he uses the word law in this chapter, but he uses it a lot. He uses it a ton of times. And by the law, what he is talking about, he's talking about what the, what the Jews understand is the, the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments, and everything that flows out, all of God's commands that flow out from the Ten Commandments for them. Um, and uh, these are the things that, that God has given his people to help them understand what it means to live rightly, to live the way they should live, to live in a way that is healthy for them, to live in a way that will bless other people. 
That is what he's talking about when he talks about the law. And I, I think, um, you know, all of us have a sense of this law. All of us do. We all have a sense of how we should be living, how we should be treating other people, how we should be investing ourselves and investing our time. We all have a sense of this law in us, whether it's really con- con- like attached to, to the Ten Commandments and to Jesus' greatest commandment to love others, or whether it's just kind of innately in us, connected to our conscience. We all have a real strong sense of how we should live. But really, the law is a tool that God gives us. It is a tool that is built for certain things, and it's not built for other things. And that's, I think, what Paul gets to in this chapter. In this chapter, he helps us to see what the law is good for and what it's not good for, okay? And that's what I want to spend just a few minutes talking about this morning. So first of all, what, what exactly is the law meant to do? What does the law do for us? And I've already mentioned it this morning, but one of the things that the law does, it, it, it helps us to understand who God is. It helps us to understand the character of God. Um, in verse 12 here, he says, The law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. These are all words, if you read, read much of the Bible, these are all words that are often used to describe who God is. That he is holy, that he is righteous, that he is good. The law is an extension of who God is. It is it's an extension of what God loves, of what he cares about, of what he values. And so if we want to know God better, one of the things that we can do is to think about, to consider how his laws reflect who he is. Okay? So the law helps us understand the character of God, what he's like, what he cares about. But another thing that this passage tells us that the law does, it it helps us understand what sin is. Um, He says, he uses the example of coveting, right? He says, he would not known what coveting was except the law says, do not covet, right? Um, In verse 7, I would would have not known sin, for I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Simply put, if we don't have a law that tells us not to do something, then, we, have, then we, we really don't know that that's bad. We don't know that that's bad for us. And I'll give you a, a just simple example. With uh, our, um, our little, three little ones started, um, they came to live with us about six years ago now. And at the time, our youngest, David, was two years old. And um, it was clear from the first day they were with us that they were coming from an environment that wasn't I'll say it wasn't as structured as our house is. It didn't have as many rules as our house did. And so I'm sitting out the very first day they're with us. I'm sitting outside. It's a beautiful day. Sitting outside on the patio. The kids are playing in the backyard. They're playing on the, on the driveway. And I look over after a little while, and I see little two-year-old David. Um, he's about 25 feet away from me. He's like face down on, the, on the, uh, the driveway, the pavement of the driveway. His face is like pressed against the pavement. I'm like, what is he doing? Like, he's not, he doesn't seem to be in distress. He doesn't seem to be hurt or anything. Like, what is he doing? I'm like, I call his name. I'm like, David, David. He just ignores me. He's just, his face is just plastered to, the, to the, the driveway. And so I get up. I walk over there. I, like, put my hand on his back. I'm like, David, what, what are you doing? And I finally get his attention. And, and he, he pulls away, and I realize what he's doing. He's found some gum on the driveway. And he's trying to pry it off with his teeth. And immediately, I'm just like, whoa, dude, no. We don't do that. That's not okay. 
We don't, first of all, we don't eat gum that we find on the ground. <laughs> Secondly, we don't try to get it off with our teeth or our tongue. That's, that's just not, that's not good for you. It's not good for you. Until that moment, he had no idea that was a bad thing to do. He thought that was perfectly normal. That was good, right? Um, that's a silly example, but I think it's true with a lot of the laws of God that we don't really know what's bad for us unless God explains it to us. We don't know what's most healthy for us unless God gives us clear rules and commands and expectations. Um, and I think he uses the command for coveting for a really good reason. Paul, You see, Paul was very, very familiar with the law. He grew up a, a very law-abiding Jewish kid and became a, a Pharisee who, who had a very high view of the law. And, and in his estimation, before he became a Christian, he, was, he, was, he really thought he was keeping the law really well. And, and I think there's a temptation to think that, when, especially when, when you're thinking about the Ten Commandments as a whole. The first nine all can, in a sense, be... Uh, they can be obeyed on a very surfacey, external level, right? Like, like I said, you know, the command, do not murder, do not kill. I can say, well, I haven't really tried to kill anybody this past week. You know, I haven't shot anybody, I haven't stabbed anybody. Um, and so I'm, I'm good, I'm innocent. Or even the command not to, like, bow down to an idol, you know. I haven't physically bowed down to a statue, in my lifetime, as far as I can remember, so I'm completely innocent, right? But then you get to the 10th commandment, and it says, do not covet. The command not to covet, it, it, it has nothing to do with your external, um, and nothing to do with, with the surface. That immediately goes down to the heart. It goes down to what you want. It goes down to what you long for. It, it immediately penetrates your heart. Um, and so maybe Paul, for a lot of years, was just ignoring the 10th commandment and focusing on the other nine. But finally, there was a moment when it came home to him, do not covet, means, you know, what, is, what does that mean? It means that, that I need to be content with everything that God has given me. I need to not want what I don't have, want what other people have. And, and it came home to him that that sin was, was, it goes way further than just surface. It goes down to the heart. It's an issue of the heart. And, and, and through the command not to covet, Paul was suddenly made aware of his internal sin, which we all need to be made aware of. That's what the law does. The law convicts us. The law shows us where we need God's forgiveness. It shows us how we are falling short. It shows us how we're living our lives in ways that, that are destructive, that aren't healthy, so that's, that's what the law is good for. There's one, one other thing, I think, from this passage that, that it shows that the law is good for. Paul points out that the law helps us understand exactly how powerful sin is, exactly how sinful sin is. In verse 13, he says, did that which is good then bring death to me? Are you saying that because the law is connected to my sin, it shows me my sin, that, that's, that it's evil, that it's bad, that, that, it, it's, that, that the law is what brings death? But, but he's like, no, the law is not to blame. It's your sin. Your sin is what brings death. Your sin is what brings misery to your life. He says, it was sin producing death in me through that, which, that what is good, through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. 
what the law does, when the law confronts our sin, it actually stirs up in us a greater resistance to the law a lot of the time. And I think you can see this probably in practice all the time. I mean, um, haven't you seen, especially with little kids, you know, when, when you say, when you put out a sign that says, do not touch, doesn't that get people a little interested, maybe, in what they're not supposed to touch? It, it makes you say, maybe I should touch that thing. You know, stay off the grass. Maybe I should go there. Keep out. I mean, for this very reason, there are sometimes we, we know that we, we see something that we don't want our kids to uh, mess with, and we don't say anything about it, because we know if we say, don't do that, they'll immediately be like, oh, what's this? This looks interesting. Because that's what the law does at times. It stirs up, it provokes our sin. Because at, the, at its foundation, what is sin? Sin is this attitude deep in our hearts that says, you can't tell me what to do. You can't tell me how I should live. I'm the boss of me. That's really what sin is at its, at its most fundamental level. And so when we are, when we are confronted with, with a law, with a rule that says you need to do this or you can't do this, that, you know, gets us a little upset at times or resistant. And I think that's what, that's what the law does. It shows us how sinful we really are, how resistant we really are to what God has made us for, how he has made us to live. So if you're looking for a tool that will, help you, that will help you to know God a little better, that will help you to know your sin better, that will help you, help you to know how, how, how dangerous your sin is, how powerful your sin is, then the law is for you, okay? And it's good, as we, as we did earlier, we read the law, and we're going to start doing that from time to time in our worship service to remind us of these things, to point us to these things. But it's also important to recognize what the law is not for, what it cannot do. One of the things that it cannot do is it cannot save you. The law cannot save you. The law cannot give you life. The law cannot give you joy, the joy that you long for, the satisfaction that you long for. The, life, the, the law cannot bring you to God. It can't. It can't. The law, all it does will really, in the end, when it comes to our sin, it, it, it condemns us, right? It, it, like it says, it, it pronounces death over us because of our sin. If we try to live our lives only by what we should do, by, by comparing it to the law, by defining our lives, by how well we're doing by the law, it will only end in frustration and isolation and emptiness and misery. It cannot give us what we long for, simply put. But also, I think it's crucial to recognize that the law, it can't give you life, and it cannot change you either. The law cannot change you. Just having the right rules and knowing what I'm supposed to do doesn't enable me. I don't, my willpower isn't strong enough to be able to just obey the laws and do what I need to do and become a better person, become a more loving person. You know, I know that I'm supposed to love people. I know that I'm supposed to give of myself, of my time, of my resources to help those around me and to bless them. But just knowing that isn't enough. 
because I'm not strong enough to follow through. I'm not strong enough to follow through. And that's what Paul gets at as he starts talking in verse 14 throughout the rest of the chapter, right? He starts talking about, well, he, he knows what he's supposed to do, but he can't do it. And it's incredibly frustrating for him. He says in verse 15, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Paul looks at his own life and he's like, I I know what I should be doing, but I can't do it. I'm doing the wrong thing. Paul himself shows us having the law, knowing what what we're supposed to do, isn't enough. It's not enough. The reality is that simple willpower will not enable us to become the people that we know we we should be, to become the people that we want to be. You know, our, our, our bookstores, or I guess, you know, you get them on Amazon now, but, but they're full of so many books that are just all about becoming a better person. Self-help books, right? Whether it's five rules, or 10 rules, or 30 rules, or maybe 52 rules for every, every, week, every week of the year that tell us if you just do these things, your life will be better. You will be a better person. It's not enough. It's not enough. We can't. We need something more. We need something more than just the law to help us become different, to help us become better. What we need is we need a person. That's what we need. We need a person. We need a person who has the power to save us. We need a person who has the power to give us life. We need a person who, has a, who, who will love us no matter what. That's what we need. To be a Christian isn't ultimately about figuring out what you need to do. But instead, to be a Christian is about figuring out to whom you belong. That's it. To be a Christian isn't about figuring out what you need to do. It's about figuring out to whom you belong. The first section of chapter 7, which isn't in your uh, order of worship, he uses this, this illustration from marriage to talk about the Jewish people's relationship to the law. And it's a little bit confusing because the illustration doesn't perfectly line up with everything here, but he's just trying to get a general point across, okay? So he, he uses this illustration from marriage where he says, if a woman is married to a man, if she goes and, 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 and marries another man or something like that, it, it, she's committing adultery, right? But if, that, if her first husband dies, if there is a death, she is then set free from the law of, of marriage to that first husband, and she's able to then marry another person. And he brings this illustration up about marriage to talk about the Jewish people's relationship to the law, to any person's relationship to the law, really. And what he says is, is that before a person comes to know Jesus, the, the way that you are defined The only way you can define yourself is by your relationship to the law, your relationship to to what you think you should do in your life, um, to how successful you are at being good. But once you come to know Jesus, if you trust in Jesus and believe him and receive him, what happens is your life is cemented to Jesus. You are joined to him. You are united to him. And now that you're united to Jesus, what happens is everything that happened to Jesus happened to you. So when Jesus died on the cross, you died as well. And because of that death, 
because of your death in Jesus, because of your connection to Jesus, your relationship to the law has been broken. You are released from allowing yourself to be defined by the law, from allowing the law to, uh, to judge you, to condemn you. And now, he says, you belong to another. That's what he says. In, in, starting in verse 4, if you have a Bible, you can look at it here. It says, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. That is the good news. I need to understand that my life isn't about you know, trying to constantly measure myself. How good am I doing? How much am I progressing? My life, I need to define myself by who I belong to, by the fact that I belong to Jesus and by the fact that he loves me. No matter how much I struggle with seeing how little progress I'm making, like Paul is struggling. You know, there's a debate on this chapter by different scholars and, and, uh, and, and people who, who interpret the Bible. And, and there's, the debate is this. When Paul, starting in verse 14, when, when Paul starts talking about that whole struggle, you know, I do the things that I hate. I know what I should do, but I don't do them. Um, there are some people who, are, who, who say, well, Paul can't, be, can't possibly be talking about himself in the present tense. He can't be possibly talking about himself as a Christian, that he's not you know, following all of the, that, that he's struggling to follow all of God's laws. Um, because he says here, and the reason they say that is because he says here that he's, he's enslaved to the law, that nothing good dwells in him. He can't possibly say that as a Christian. Um, but then there are plenty of others who say, well, of course, as you look at this passage, Paul is absolutely talking about his life as a Christian. Um, I fall into that camp, absolutely. You, you've guessed, as I've already been talking about this. As, 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 as this passage shifts into verse 14, Paul, Paul shifts into the present tense. And, and, and as I, I, might, I might be really simple as I read this, but as I read this, it seems clear to me that Paul is talking about himself in the present tense. As he uses the present tense. But then as he also talks about, yes, yes, he talks about the fact that, that sin, this, this sinful principle this, is living in him, yes. But he also talks about how he delights in the law of God, which is what only, only Christians can do. And he talks about how Jesus has delivered him from this body of death, right? And so I think this is good news, okay, that Paul struggles like this. This is good news for me because this is one of the things that this passage teaches us. It teaches me that as I struggle with my own sin, as I, as I look at my life and I'm like, I know I should be doing this, but I struggle, but I can't, but I don't, over and over again, it reminds me that I'm not crazy. It reminds me that I'm normal. And at the same time, it reminds me that um, just as Paul struggled and knew he belonged to Jesus and he was loved, I, in the midst of my struggle with sin, can know that I am loved and that I belong to Jesus. That my struggle with my own sin, with my failures, with my slow progress, that doesn't eliminate me from being part of Jesus' family, from being loved by Jesus, no matter what. And that's part of the good news of this passage. The good news of this passage reminds me that, that I, I, my struggle is, is real and that it's normal and that I'm still loved. And that's what's most important, that I belong to Jesus, that he is the one who's delivered me. That, it, that it's normal at times in my life to come to the point where like, wretched man that I am, 
Who will deliver me from this body of death? But if, if I can come to that place, the good news is that there is a person who is able to deliver me, who has delivered me. But I think it's also really important to recognize when Paul is talking about his struggle, he's, the, the emphasis here in chapter 7 is on the law of God, right? And when Paul is talking about his struggle, he, he's, he's basically talking about his struggle because he's talking about how his life is lived when he's only thinking about the law of God. If I'm only thinking about the things that I should do, the, the law of God, then I'm going to be driven to frustration and despair and misery. But there's something more. There's something more that I need to be thinking about. And, and that's what I want to kind of just end here. Um, Romans 7 is very helpful for us to understand the importance of the law, but it's not the whole story. There, the Romans 7 is really kind of a part one of a two-part story. You can't look at Romans 7 without also looking at Romans 8. And uh, because of time, I'm not going to look at Romans 8 today, but we're going to start looking at it next week. But I, this past week, we've been, uh, I, I, we were standing around the dinner table, and I was talking with, uh, we were talking with our family, and, and one of our sons, I think Titus pointed out, said that uh, they're coming out with a new movie um, based on the musical Wicked. Um, I don't know if you guys know that, or if you're fans of, the, of musicals or things like that, but, but what he tells me is that it's going to be a two-part movie, where they make a first part, and then you've got to wait a whole year, or maybe longer to watch the second part. I'm like, why is there this huge fad these days with movies, where they're constantly making these two-part movies? You know, like Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. Any of you guys see that? We were left with a cliffhanger. It's a two-parter, right? Dune. Did anybody see Dune? A couple of us. And we're still waiting to see the second part, right? We're still waiting to see the second part. But if, if the first part is made well, you're left with this tension, longing to know more. But you're also left with a hint of hope, that you're, of, of expectation of what's going to happen in the second part, Right? And I think that's what Romans 7 does for us. It, it, as we read Romans 7, we're left with this tension. Um, the, the law is going to leave me longing for something more. First of all, it leads me to recognize that my only hope is Jesus. But if I want to change, it leads me to, to say, God, I need something more than the law. I need something more. And I think that's what he, he starts to get into in Romans 8. And he gives us a little hint of that in Romans 7. He, says the, he talks about the law so much, but he does mention one other really important thing in verse 6, where he says this, um, and that's the first verse printed in your order of worship. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. God has given us something tremendous, supernatural, life-changing, and that is his spirit. And that's very much what Romans 8 is all about. And so Romans 7, it shows us, you know, don't do this. Yes, the law is good. It's helpful for certain things, but don't rely on it for life. Don't rely on it to become different. Look to Jesus and get ready. Expect depend upon what I've given you in my spirit. So wait to see. I would encourage you even, you know, I hope, you're, I hope after you've read Romans 7, you're like, I can't wait for next week. You don't have to. Just read Romans 8 when you get home today, okay? And read Romans 8 tomorrow. And read Romans 8 the next day. 
Just keep reading Romans 8. It'll be good for you. I, trust me. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would, um, you would help us. Help us to see, um, first of all, how valuable your commands are for us, the law. How valuable it is that, that Jesus came and he told us, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love others as you love yourself. But Father, we pray that you would help us also um, to recognize that that command is not enough. It's not enough. What we need is we need to, to know that we belong. That we belong to Jesus, the one who has given himself for us. Um, and we need your spirit. Father, we pray that you would help us to, to, to leave here in reliance on what you have done and on what you give. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, we now have an opportunity to meet Jesus, to meet